Hey, Campbell, thanks for joining us on Atwood Unleashed. How are you doing? Good. Hey, Stephen. It's great to be here. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. It's good. Um, maybe you could just start by letting our listeners and um, viewers know what it is you do exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Campbell Marrera. I'm a Canadian skeptic. I co-host and co-founded the Invisible Night School, a, a weekly live YouTube show podcast. And we talk about paranormal subjects, uh, mainly UFOs from an analytic perspective. And I'm also the creator of UAPstudy.com, where I detail my journey through the UFO subject. Wonderful. You know what? It's so lovely and refreshing to get a skeptic on about this issue. I, I am a self-described skeptic myself, and I, I've spoken to many a, UA, a UFO advocate on this show, and they all are firmly in the camp of um, aliens or, or other um, sort of supernatural explanations. And the strange thing about this subject for me is I'm kind of kind of disappointed it's not aliens. I don't know how you feel about that. You know, I uh, I agree with you in some ways. I I'm concerned about the idea of aliens arriving because of the historic precedent of you know tech, even intellectually equivalent and technologically superior uh, cultures interacting. It's never a good thing for the uh, the technologically uh, you know reduce like the lower civilization. So I have some concerns on that front, but also it would be so transformative and everything. It would be exciting. So, uh, you know, I, I have mixed feelings. Yeah, I did see that incredible documentary Independence Day once. And it, <laughs> it really gave cause for concern for sure. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's worth discussing uh, a lot of what we do have because I, I used to love UFO stories as a big X-Files fan as a teenager. And then I as I became an adult, I kind of I felt like I grew out of it a little bit and I, I developed a more, uh, you know, critical approach to these things. And it seemed for the longest time that we didn't really have anything concrete to go on. But what's been fascinating for me uh, in recent years is the declassification of some of the, you know, Pentagon footage. And what we seem to have now is some actual tangible evidence of something. Obviously, it's not logical to then, uh, you know, imply this is aliens or something else. But I'm just wondering, for instance, I, I suppose one of them was dubbed the Go Faster tape. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the one I'm uh, speaking of here. And that seemed to me a very convincing um, uh, document, uh, rather, or piece of evidence of uh, an actual UFO, something that could not have been created uh, with current technology, yet it was something physical that was being observed. And that, that got me really excited. And then I saw somebody do a debunking video where they explained it away as a potential bird. And then I was, I was deflated. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on what, what sort of logical explanations we could have for that footage. Yes. Well, yeah, there's the uh, gimbal and go fast videos. Uh, the go fast is the one where the object appears to streak rapidly off the screen um, at the end of it. The argument goes that it could just be the locking mechanism of the uh, automated sensor system just losing lock and it actually being the uh, difference in movement and the uh, range to the object that produces that effect. Um, the thing that I always look at is uh, the most likely explanation without putting down the less probable ones. I don't really uh, engage on that side. And I find that when you come to the subject with respect and you're engaging with uh, self-identified as uh, truth seekers, uh, you know, called uh, believers or, uh, you know, uh, uh, disclosure advocates. Uh, if you come at it with respect and uh, 
you just sort of just treat it as a, a friendly conversation, a good faith dialogue. Uh, you can make some progress. Uh, with these videos, I think that the most compelling explanation, and Mick West, we've had him on our show. Um, he's the guy who debunks a bunch of the stuff, been on CNN doing that. He provides sufficient plausible explanations for the observed features in the videos that do not require an extraordinary explanation. And when there are sufficient plausible explanations, it, it just ends up being on a balance of probabilities more likely than not than it is something prosaic. Yeah, Occam's ways is always very useful in these scenarios for sure. And I suppose, like, I, I sometimes find as well that if you know people who have a skeptical mindset and are very uh, interested in debunking extraordinary claims that don't have evidence can often feel like you know can often come across as sort of party poopers. It's almost like telling people Santa doesn't exist sometimes. And how, how do you how do you deal with that sort of reaction when you're basically somehow in people's minds making the world slightly less magical? Yeah, well, that's a, a tough one because I understand that side of it. It is more exciting and interesting. I actually started looking at it out of an open interest during uh, the lockdowns. Uh, it was actually uh, President Obama's uh, comments, which are really not anything specifically notable. They just got through to me in that moment to be like, wait, what's going on here? When he uh, gave that interview on the Late Late Show in uh, spring 2021, and he says, uh, you know, well, let me be serious for a moment here. There are objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they move their trajectories. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And I didn't think to myself then, it's like, oh, Obama's uh, admitting alien UFO stuff. I was like, why would a former president encourage me to think about UFOs, especially in a time like this, when I know that the national security policies of the United States discourage uh, interest in conspiracy for a variety of reasons. And uh, that's what sort of uh, launched me into this uh, subject specifically. Um, so I, I was motivated by interest and possible excitement from it being something completely radical. But... I don't think we're quite there. And uh, I, I would say there's maybe a middle ground. Um, current debunking models, like what McWest does, does leave an openness where you say, I don't know. And that's quite reasonable. It's totally acceptable. I don't know what you saw. You might not have seen anything. I don't know. Historically, when you look at the UFO subject, the original skeptics and scientists getting involved, uh, like Sir Arthur C. Clarke, my position is essentially identical to the position of Arthur C. Clarke through the 50s and 60s and uh, even into the 70s. Um, it's you, you give the explanation for why it's unlikely to be the more extraordinary while providing a sufficient plausible explanation at the same time to uh, at least alleviate that tension because the human mind does want answers. And if you leave it without any answer, then what I've seen especially when we're, we engage directly with the UFO Twitter sub-community. And what I see is that when answers aren't given, even uh, potential uh, based on good evidence, that people will move towards somebody giving any answer. So, yeah, that's a good answer. And I was just wondering as well, in terms of the, this footage that we, these new you know, declassified pieces of video we've seen, uh, there's an extra element here that they are actually corroborated with eyewitness testimonies of people well-respected within the military. Uh, and how do we talk about what is essentially anecdotal evidence, uh, really, uh, without implying that these people are simply lying? Because a lot of their accounts are very specific, and detailed in what they have have seen and I, i've noticed the you know they're very careful not to say you know it's aliens 
or whatever, they seem to be quite neutral on that aspect of it. But what they are describing is a, as a physical vehicle with propulsion, you know, metallic, large, moves unlike anything else. Uh, and this kind of corroborates some of the video footage we have. How do we, how do we explain what's going on here with military personnel giving eyewitness testimony of this kind? Well, that's a good question. You have to dive into a variety of different subjects. Uh, human psychology is clearly one of them. Uh, we have many instances in the past of things being observed, sometimes by large groups of people, with uh, what would seem to be shared perceptions of something real and physical. Uh, one example that I was actually just reading the other day was a letter written in the, uh, I believe it was in the 1700s by a, uh, a natural philosopher, what would become a scientist, talking about how the number of eyewitness reports from sailors about a specific kind of sea monster with features that we know now don't exist. It's, he's arguing, Occam's razor, that given the number of independent uh, eyewitness observations, it's likely that there is something with these features. So... You, people can see a lot of different things and then come together and it can uh, be very different from what's uh, observed. Like uh, Alex Dietrich was one of the uh, fighter pilots involved in the uh, famous uh, Tic Tac incident. And uh, Fravor was the uh, commander who went down and closer. She was flying above doing an overwatch. And her observation, when she went back to the carrier, she thought that she had seen a missile test and she was upset that they had been got directed towards an active missile test. So you know, and that's one of the two big witnesses on the uh, the feature there on a, was it PBS or whatever that was the big one. So you know, you, you can see how things when you get into the details, they can kind of like continuously recede, and uh, you know, it, it typically ends up that way. Yeah, and um, in terms of you know eyewitness testimony, things like that. I mean, it, it adds an extra dimension for me, and this is where I, I people lose me very quickly when they imply some sort of government complicity or a cover up. Because to my mind, governments in general are fairly incompetent, <laughs> and to cover up something of this size would be almost impossible, especially considering it probably have to be a multinational thing across borders to do. I mean, did you how how much stock do you put in these kind of conspiracies that not only have aliens visited us, but the government are aware of it and the government are act actively engaging in some sort of cover-up. Yes. Well, that's an, you have to get into the, the details of it. My undergraduate was in philosophy. So you're going to see that I get into the exact meaning of the words sometimes more so than uh, maybe some people would like, but so the cover-up element, we know that governments engage in cover-ups all the time, typically for valid national security reasons, sometimes not valid, and they get discovered and then uh, investigated and things like that. So for like the Roswell uh, crash, we had a real uh, cover-up that was of a listening system being used uh, in secret uh, to pick up the sound waves from nuclear detonation tests in uh, Soviet Union. And that's what actually crashed, uh, according to the uh, investigation in the 90s and the uh, you know, Air Force Army records. Uh, so they were actually doing a cover up for many decades on that. Um, you know, but that's valid national security reasons. Now, when it comes to UAP, that's one of the most extraordinary things I've actually found in my uh, research uh, as a skeptic is that there is a... Uh, a report from the United Kingdom government that was completed in 2000 and declassified in 2006 that is the definitive internal uh, intelligence community in the United Kingdom's report on the subject of UAP. And it led to the closure of their UAP programs as a result of that 
study. Uh, it's called Unidentified Aerial Phenomena in the UK Air Defense Region. It was uh, completed by DI-55. Uh, a professor at uh, Sheffield, Sheffield Hallam University, Dr. David Clark, got it declassified through newly introduced Freedom of Information Laws. And what it says in that report, uh, the uh, conclusion of the report is that uh, UAP with the traditional features of uh, eyewitness reports, uh, accelerating rapidly, taking off landing, uh, balls of light of various colors, um, it says those objects, it's, their languages indisputably exist. And it says then are almost certainly a kind of ball lightning atmospheric plasma phenomenon. And, uh, and that's a, a, you know, MOD report. It goes into detail about how uh, the top technology managers have already been briefed about this and, uh, you know, all this other stuff that's very deeply conspiratorial. They talk about how they think the Russians are ahead of them on research into this thing and they should keep it secret for that reason. And then uh, The Guardian and BBC News and Wired did a very extensive reporting on it. And uh, it's all 100% above board. Uh, it's a valid document. It's represents the sincerely held internal views of the uh, you know people who completed it. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable to, for it to say those things. But, you know, so you can see that there's sort of like, it gets complicated, right? Because it's like, well, I, I guess that's a cover up, but you could say that's for valid national security reasons, and it doesn't ha seem to have anything to do with aliens. Yeah, and, and, and just swinging back to this idea of philosophy, and I suppose the skeptical mindset or skeptical philosophy, it, it becomes very clear to me who's thinking skeptically and who isn't almost immediately when when talking to people who has that in their their wheelhouse. And I was just wondering, what sort of things can you point to, or you know, uh, give, you know, give people advice into how to think more critically. Where do you start when you've got a piece of information and we don't have all the answers? What are the first principles? What are the first things you should be looking at or looking for or, or telling yourself in response to the information you have? The foundational difference is in uh, verifiability. It's something that Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, a very famous one, talked about a lot is observation versus interpretation. And he talks about how both of those things are critical and interpretation is equally, if not more so critical to the actual original observations. So with the subject of like UFOs, when I started looking at the subject, I began with the top level discussion that I knew was gonna happen with fellow skeptics. I began with peer-reviewed papers, science papers, and I was looking through research databases like researchgate.net, typing in UAP and looking at the studies that came up, looking at their um, citations, going to those studies, seeing what the scientists are actually saying, because it, it just made sense. Like, it's like uh, President Obama sort of said, uh, he was saying, like, there are things that people still don't know exactly what they are and people are studying them. And uh, I was like, well, if there are actually things happening in the atmosphere, then people probably are studying them. And, you know, that's where you should start. You should start with the experts, with the peer-reviewed, verified, uh, or at least verifiable information. And then you uh, sort of uh, have to take it from there. And it's very hard to teach uh, the um, approach where you are prioritizing verifiability. It's uh, It's been well studied, actually. And the best approach is, is that somebody who believed something that is unsupported uh, and then has 
adapted their views over time uh, to uh, more consistent with uh, predictability, uh, verifiability, that type of person is the best suited to then go into the community and explain uh, how to change that over time so that you can sort of have it be compatible to have the more extraordinary beliefs while still adhering to the principles of the scientific method, which are based on predict, uh, producing uh, predictions that are reliable. And everybody fundamentally wants their predictions to be reliable. And so you have to make that connection and it can be very challenging. Yeah, it's a good answer. And I suppose in a way, I think, I don't know if it's a product of our evolution or the way our brain works, but it feels like we're really reluctant just to say, I don't know. And I think that's a very reasonable answer to give a lot of the time when you, when you can't be sure and the, you know, other people are making huge claims. Yeah, I think that we are programmed to seek uh, a clarity. It seems uh, quite evident to me based uh, not only on my personal interactions with people in these communities, but also just in the, uh, the literature, something very interesting that has come up again and again is the way that information is transferred in uh, these communities. Like uh, in folk uh, history, often it's elders within the community. There's a consensus form and the information is transferred that way. And the study, when you study the human mind, you see that humans don't prioritize uh, predictability, uh, the verifiability. Adaptively, our minds have been shaped to prioritize making sure we are not ostracized from our in-group because we adapted over hundreds of thousands of years to small groups and that would be the biggest threat to death so going evidence first with these uh types of arguments sometimes isn't actually the best way to do it if you want to convince the person that you're talking to and then there, you, you can change your um method if you're you, talking to a person like in a debate format but you have a huge audience and you want sort of to have the sort of people on the fence uh, listen, you can sort of be more on the uh, evidence side, but it depends on who you're talking to, what the best method will be. For sure. Somebody just brought something up in the chat actually that I've seen before and I've not really investigated too much, but Imogen's mentioned that the CIA created the term conspiracy theory to rubbish people who think critically. Now, yeah, it seems the implication there is the CIA created this term to discredit anyone who may have been onto what they were up to. I don't know if this is something <laughs> something you're aware of. I've uh, I've heard that before. I, I within reference to the I think the JFK thing. Um, now, if I recall correctly, it was within the context of being quite concerned about the Soviet Union using um, the conspiracy theories, uh, whatever you want to call them, to destabilize the United States. So when there are these sort of cover-up type things, typically there are you know, there's an argument there. There's a valid national security reason. You don't want to have your nation be destabilized by uh, external uh, powers who you're in a cold war with. And uh, similar things have happened in the UFO uh, subject. The CIA actually produced a, a report called the Robertson Panel Report, uh, January 1953, that was very foundational. They only released it, uh, I think it was like 40, 50 years later. And uh, they go through all of their justifications for why they have behaved the way they have uh, on this subject. And it's it's all just quite reasonable stuff. It's uh, concerns about the Soviet Union, um, the psychological effects on the populations that 
when there was a major UFO event over Washington, D.C. in July 1952. The information uh, channels were actually clogged by the number of people calling in about the observations, and the military channels were actually clogged, so that was a huge risk. They talked about how they were afraid that the Soviets might do a strike while a UFO uh, event was occurring, and it could mess with them. So, so you see that when there are these descriptions of the cover-ups within their own internal documents, these are reports that they produced inside the agencies to guide their own leadership. It's not public-facing reports where they would have different uh, reasons to say things that might not actually be directly one-to-one -one true. You see that there are valid national security reasons often, even if we decades later might disagree with the uh, ultimate uh, ends uh, in mind. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems on the information we have and the videos we have and the eyewitness testimonies, it's very easy for a skeptic to outright dismiss these claims. But I suppose the question would be, what would be acceptable evidence for you? What parameters would need to be met for you to say, yep, something something definitely going on here in terms of unidentified flying objects? This is uh, something that I ran into uh, in the uh, when I was first getting into this, looking at it, what I found was these series of physics papers uh, in published uh, published in peer-reviewed uh, natural science journals, describing uh, light phenomena in the Earth's atmosphere. That when you take a J. Dr. J. Allen Hynek's book, he was the uh, lead U.S. Air Force investigator for Project Blue Book, which is their UFO investigation. Uh, body. He was actually chairman and an astronomer of the uh, Northwestern University's astronomy department. He provided the uh, observable descriptions. They're like uh, of original UFO people that he interviewed, and they aren't spaceships. They aren't metallic craft. Uh, he's describing luminous objects, uniform lights, no point source lights. And then uh, he describes them moving erratically and things like that. So he's describing these luminous phenomena that do not have distinct point source lights. And then he says like, uh, you know, rarely if ever is the object to which the light is attached ever described. And then he says, this may be an assumption. The UFO may be nothing more than the light. And then in the modern physics papers have been published just in the last 15 years. They're, they're describing observationally identical phenomena. How it was proven that ball lightning exists in 2014, the optical and spectral characteristics of ball lightning was published in physical review letters. They, uh, a research team had a remote sensor system installed in China evaluating lightning strikes. They happened to catch a, a, a ball lightning uh, phenomenon forming. And uh, because it is an unresolved light source, it would be completely worthless. It would never prove anything. However, they had a sensor system rigged up that provided high resolution spectral uh, characteristics uh, that they could identify and then they could evaluate. So they could see what the actual composition of the object emitting the light was. And that's how they got it published. That's how they verified ball lightning. So that's the kind of thing we need. You need a high resolution spectral analysis if you're looking at a light source. And then you can see what is actually producing that light. And that's what worked for ball lightning. It's a luminous phenomenon in the atmosphere that moves erratically and all this stuff that we're describing. I mean, the argument within the government papers is that it's one-to-one, -one, they think that's what's happening. Um, so so that's how the scientists prove that. And I would say that if UFOs are a distinct phenomenon, that's how they also should be proved because that's the standard that's been set by the scientific community. Fair enough. So I suppose as well, UFOs are undeniably linked to the, the idea of extraterrestrials. And for me personally, I would love to get evidence of 
alien life before I before I shuffle off myself. And I, I'd, I'd settle for anything as basic as a fossilized microbe on, on yes. another planet, for instance. It doesn't have to be a little green men. But it seems to me, though, if like if we accept the universe may be infinite and, um, you know, the conditions for which life can arise um, aren't all that rare. Um, it, it seems really strange that given the billions of years that have passed, no one's popped around for a cup of tea. And uh, I was just wondering what are your general thoughts on alien life out there and the probability and what could possibly explain the fact that uh, an advanced alien race hasn't come to earth or there's no remembrance of any sort of alien race existing here before we did. I'm really happy you asked that because I think about that all the time and uh, I often sort of feel uh, shut down by fellow skeptics when I bring it up. My personal opinion of the, you know, the Fermi power paradox, which is like, why aren't they here? At exactly what you're saying, billions of years, nothing about our solar system should be specifically unique. When we look out, we don't see anything specifically unique. To me, statistically, just within the Milky Way galaxy, I'm not talking about like intergalactic travel, just within the galaxy, we've got hundreds of thousands of stars and uh, billions of years. I, statistically, there should have been countless alien species visiting us. I don't see strong evidence for that. I don't see compelling evidence for that. So it's like, why, why? One of my co-hosts on the Invisible Night School is actually a professor, evolutionary biologist at um, UCLA. And he has uh, talked to me on the show about this because I say that. And then he uh, responds with his opinion. He says um, he believes, based on his understanding of uh, evolution, that there may have been a single instance where the, uh, and I don't know the details because I'm not a biologist, but the point is, is that there's RNA within the mitochondria and then DNA. And there is some kind of point where the independent organisms fuse together and he believes that that one-off, that may have been a one-off thing, and it may be so extraordinarily rare that at that stage, like tiny, tiny life forms, that that is where life stops typically, and we are just in an extraordinarily unusual situation here on Earth, and that's what explains the absence of uh, apparent contact. So I've accepted his explanation for that because I'm uh, not a professor of evolutionary biology um and and you know i'm still not fully satisfied by it i still feel like statistically it doesn't fully add up but i, I accept it for now <laughs> that's a good answer and when you look at those sort of magnificent images we get from the hubble telescope of just how vast uh, everything is does that make you feel isolated or does it make you feel hopeful that there's something out there what's your gut reaction when you see these images yeah, well, once again, I'll bring up the philosophy background. It um, It's inspiring almost from a, a, it's almost like because everything is so vast and everything is so seemingly without inherent meaning that I derive value from creating my own meaning. And I, I feel that I, I, it encourages me to live in the moment, in the day, and, uh, and to like embrace this life that we have. It might be, and probably, in my view, probably is the only one we have. So the infinity that we see in time and space is uh, somewhat terrifying, but also in a sense, it, it centers me on what should matter to me as an individual, which is the relationships and lifestyle and living day to day. That's a good answer. And I, we, we spoke earlier about sort of myth making and legends and I suppose the, the value and importance of storytelling to the human condition. And I certainly feel many of the monotheisms, monotheisms fit into that 
category. And I was just wondering what's the implication for the world religions, perhaps, if one day we did discover alien life? Is that something that would, you know, effectively end monotheism? Or would you think monotheism would just find a way to incorporate that into their their sort of theism? Well, it probably depends on each religion. Uh, Catholicism, for example, from what I understand, they actually had a conference uh, at one point several decades ago where they embraced the idea of extraterrestrial life. And they uh, it was something to the effect of... Uh, God's uh, just playing a bigger sandbox than we realized. And, uh, you know, the, the Mormon uh, faith, uh, they openly talk about other worlds. Uh, if you are a good practitioner, you receive a world all to yourself uh, in the afterlife. Um, and so it's, and there's no conflict there. I imagine other religions, there might be more explicit conflict, but um, I'm not seeing anything about this that would stop uh, organized religion. If anything, we're going to see uh, a re redo of history where we're going to see uh people going out into space to try to do conversions. I, <laughs> I think <laughs> that's really funny. Space, <laughs> space Jehovah's Witnesses. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I well, think we'll some, see. The Scientologists are way ahead of the curve on this already. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yes. Sure. Um, well, Campbell, it's been it's absolutely lovely speaking to you. Maybe you could tell uh, the, the listeners and viewers where they can find out uh, more information about your work and where they can listen and hear more of you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been uh, really fun, Stephen. Yeah, my uh, Twitter is at UAP study. The show, The Invisible Night School, we're on YouTube. It's uh, youtube.com slash at Invisible Night School slash streams. We do all our stuff live. Uh, and then um, I guess that's it for now. Yeah, just the Twitter and the YouTube is what I'll point you to. Cool. What sort of what sort of things do you get up to on Twitter? Do you get down into the, the arguments, the fighting and the general tribalism? Or is it just to sort of promote your your podcast? Well, you know, I did get into a lot of the more serious discussions. I, you know, I have interacted with all, I've watched all the interviews that uh, were about UFOs on this channel, and uh, I've interacted with almost all the people that you've had on here to various extents over the years, uh, positive and negative. But I stay positive in the last couple of years, uh, 100%. Uh, it's just the way it's healthier, it's happier communicating. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with uh, just sort of promoting the show, putting out some info, but being uh, being friendly, trying to engage in good faith discussion. Because I think that's where this is going to like kind of actually move forward. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, Campbell, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to me today. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. Take care. Cheers.